Okay. We're here. We're here, right? We're here. I died twice. We're here. <laughs> yeah. I drowned when I was five. Uh-huh. Had an NDE. And then I died of a tubal pregnancy uh, and when I was 25. Oh, wow. So, but um, people have been asking me when I get interviewed about near-death experiences, anybody you know of that died, had NDE from COVID? Nope. Well, now I got really? one. <laughs> yeah. I'm a rarity of that. <laughs> yeah, because everybody was in the end of ears. One in the ear when COVID first started a year ago. He's like, Well, there'll be a lot of NDEs from COVID now. I'm like, Okay, that'll be cool. Well, I, now here it is a year later before I actually hear one. Yeah, yeah. But the, uh, I noticed the guy on the show with you, he didn't have an NDE, did he? No, I didn't. No, it didn't sound like it. No. Uh uh. He was into a different spiritual uh, experience than, than, than what I went through. He sounded to me like he was able to just regulate his heart beat and yeah he was into meditation and yeah and that type of thing but yeah, yeah. my what, kids my kids watched it and said the same thing that they didn't pick up on a true nde from him you right know, either, so well and, i'm glad your kids knew what a true nde was well we have learned we have learned i mean and and like you said you had um you were five years old when you had your first one um you know mine just happened less than a year ago. I mean, who knows? I, I was in a coma for just over two and a half weeks, or close to two and a half weeks. So somewhere in that time, you know, I experienced uh, the NDE and, um, uh, you know, so I, I've had to understand it myself. Yes. What happened and where I was. And I've only had a year to understand it. Some people had, you know, 20, 30, 40 years to understand it. I, um, I listened to one last night and he had it like in 1979, you know, and, um, you know, I'm sitting there saying, well, I had mine only a year ago and I'm still trying to understand some things. But you have such the benefit though, that the, all the information and the internet and it's yeah. out there. Yeah. And because, you know, five years old, you know, that I didn't have any words to say what just happened. What happened? And then I was pushing it aside. And then I had it at 25. As soon as I got back in my body, this was 1986. I was like, what in the world? You know, I was just in heaven accepting it. And now I'm back, but it wasn't over because my doctor wasn't believing something was wrong yet. So, you know, I only had like a limited amount of time window yeah. for him to realize something was wrong and to fix it. But, um, you know, I thought it never happened to anybody in the history of the whole world. Never thought I, it happened to anybody, so I couldn't speak of it. Sure, sure. Even though it could have saved my life, but I thought they just put me in a psych ward. But um, do you want to go ahead? And yeah. now, now, was that the first time you talked about yours publicly? Was it was, it was yeah. It was the first okay. time I publicly, uh, you know, kind of put it out there. And okay. um, like you said, it, it takes you a while to understand what happened. And my daughter just told me last night, she said, Dad, you're explaining your experiences completely different than how you explained them a year ago when you first woke up. Oh, hold on. I had something. Yeah. Cancel. Oh, I hope this don't cancel the meeting. We'll have to leave this meeting and start a new meeting. It wants me to leave and start. We don't want to do that. I'm just going to X out of that. 
There we go. It was right across your face. Oh. I'm sorry. What'd your daughter say? No, she said that I'm explaining my NDEs completely different than what I did a year ago because she was a she she was allowed to finally come in because she's a nurse and they finally uh, allowed her to come in my last 10 days in the hospital uh, to see me because uh, a year ago today actually um, I went down to the second time to my family practice doctor because I was so sick and he told me I had the flu to go home and I'd be okay but when I woke up Finally, they brought me out of this coma. Um, she told me last night, she said, Dad, you're explaining what happened to you. Because she was the first person I saw and the first person I explained everything. And she said last night, it was almost immediately when I woke up, I started to explain my uh, experiences. And she said, you're completely different in explaining them much more in depth because I have a better understanding now. Of yeah, and there's a shock factor too. When you first tell it, you can't believe the words coming out of your mouth. Well, you don't have the words to explain it, do you? Uh-uh, right. You, know? you, don't, you don't understand what you just experienced, or at least I didn't understand what I experienced. So I was using words like, well, I traveled and I was in a, a beautiful city, maybe Paris, London, you know, and that was my reference points because at that time, that's all I had was what I knew. But then when I started looking into it and reading other um, people's other other people's travels and things, I suddenly realized, well, that's where I was. Well, that's what I did, or that's what I experienced. And it suddenly dawned on me that I wasn't in London or Paris, you know? Mm -hmm. And my wife told me too, she says, you know, I never explained, well, I saw the Eiffel Tower, or I saw Big Ben, or I saw these landmarks, you know, I just explained it, that it was a big, beautiful city, you know, and, and just immaculately kept and because I didn't have a reference. Um, I hope you find that after we talk that I've helped you process and even bring it out even more. Yeah. Um, I'm a former counselor, social worker, investigator. So even though you haven't had very many NDE interviews, usually they just let you talk and might ask some basic questions, but I'll get really deep into what oh, yeah. you're saying. Where were and you an investigator at? I was a child abuse investigator here in my county in Ohio. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, worked, for seven I worked, years. I, I worked for, um, I was at OPADA. Uh, I was uh, Ohio Peace Officer Training Academy in London. Uh-huh. Um, it falls under the Attorney General's office, and I was uh, the deputy director out there for uh, 10 cool. years. Yeah. Cool. I worked at uh, women's, they owned a new women's maximum security prison here, not far from where I live yeah, in O2. Yeah. I started there as a counselor oh, yeah. and did that for a while too. Yeah. You know, I went through the academy. Yeah. 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 I, I worked there. I worked on the advanced training side. You know, they cool. split into two. My master's is in forensic science. And awesome. It's it split into two. You have your basic training you know, and, and then your advanced training. And I worked on the advanced, as a director of advanced training and then deputy director for the academy. Wouldn't it be cool if we could somehow work out a forensic interview for these type of things? Because, you know, some mm -hmm. people just come on and just make up stuff and they're all doing all these, you know, political, oh, I say, God told me, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And then, yeah. I mean, I would, I would like be hooked up to a polygraph even, you know, and go through a full interrogation. You sound like my wife. My wife just said that to me the other night. We're really? We're sitting on the couch talking. And she said, Brandy, she said, uh, 
she said, you know, you are so honest and you, you, you shared so, so much of your honest feelings. She goes, they could hook you up to a polygraph and, you know, everything would be verified because, you know, it's just so truthful. You couldn't make up, you know, what I'm right. saying. And I said, well, I don't have any reason to. I said, but I'm sure right. people could read these books and enough information on the internet to fabricate, you know, um, uh, there are there are a lot of people that are wanting to be the next Betty Eady, you know, and make millions off a book. I haven't get, read you know, and other ones get a movie deal, you know, um, like um, you know, the different movies out there. And there's yeah. a lot of competition and backbiting and NDE community. And yeah. I'm so glad you haven't been in, involved in that because well, I'm learning. I'm learning okay. from what you say, and I really appreciate your time and 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 you giving me the opportunity because. I've had asked a few people, um, and I won't mention any names, but they're pretty, what do I want to say? Um, not popular, but. High up there? Yeah. In the in, NDE community? In NDE world, you know, and they've never responded back. Never, you know, responded back to my questions and, or anything like that. That's so, why I started this, not knowing really how to do it, because it has to be done. Yeah. It really oh, yeah, does and because it's, you, it's liberal. Yeah. It's um, and it's yeah. left and, and they want to use it for their political stuff, throw in the mediums and the palm readings and, uh, you know, charge a hundred dollars. Cause I had NDE and I could speak to angels. Give me a hundred dollars on your credit card. And I'll tell you what the angels have to say, you know? Yeah. And, um, it's horrible. I was in it. I was a group, I had two groups. I was a group leader as international, um, had an international group getting ready to launch. And I was, I spoke at conferences. I was invited to meet uh, to the groups and try, we went to Hawaii to a group. Oh, wow. I was invited down to uh, Virginia beach with uh, David Bennett um and stuff and then and um, they found out i was pro-life pro and that like nothing to do with you we will give you bad book reviews we will ruin no you we will if you don't agree not to be pro-life i'm done i'm gone you know i answer to god <laughs> yeah i mean what does that have to do with what you're experienced and what you're there it's they have an agenda what they want to do with ndes wow and we know why we have, you know, I believe, and that's my own personal belief. I believe God gave us these to come back and tell what's the message. Because, you know, you imagine all the people in my mind, I'm thinking that went to heaven, because I know I did on my second indeed, my first moment there, I thought, it's real. Oh my gosh, it's real. The whole Bible and the Jesus and heaven, it's real. And all I see was bright white light and I was alone the very first second I was there to think this before things went on, you know. And, and just that moment, it's real. I wish I could tell people it was real. And then it took me decades before I could actually, I mean, I told my um, ex-husband, you know, about it. And then I didn't know what else to do with it. And because I never knew a word for it, you know, and once I heard, you know, et cetera. But I think we're supposed to tell people that it is real because we are in such horrible times right now and people would really listen. Oh yeah. But the horrible times, people I believe are creating these horrible times are using NDEs to say, you are God yourself. Yeah. There is no hell, which I don't know, I wasn't there. But they have like, what brought mine up was an NDE, a famous NDE who was doing NDE interviews, who was a good friend of mine, 
posted an um, interview she did with Robert Schwartz about his book. He's not in the ear. And they were promoting abortion. They were using NDEs to promote abortion. And I commented, that's not right. No. And that's when it all broke open. And they come to me and they said, you have a choice to make either your NDE groups, et cetera, being an IONS or pro-life. And I fought them for a long time before I gave up my groups and stuff. And finally I said, I know right from wrong. And what you're doing is wrong. I want no part of it. So. What you just said was very interesting on IONS. Um, I've been to their website, and it was through that website that I actually asked even Alexander a question, and he never got back to me. He won't. Yeah. And uh, um, some will. He won't. Yeah, well, I've asked others, and, and they haven't. But I'm reading, uh, I'm, I'm almost done with it. Uh, Imagine Heaven by John Berkey. That's good. And yeah, and he, I, when I read his portion, he's, he's got very little in there and he only mentioned, I think I am once or twice. And I got the impression that he wasn't a fan. Yeah. You know, I was, when I wrote my I book at the end of that. it, I praised him. Yeah. And I was curious about that uh, because I read it. It was like, yeah, I think he's, he's not a fan of this, you know, and I, and I was really? wondering why. You and know? I think it's Burke. I don't think there's a east, I think the east oh, side. It's just Burke, John Burke. Yeah. And a uh, very good book. I it really, is. I'm it really is. I read that one. And um, because there, there was a couple of things in there. And that's why I said, I've got one, maybe you can help me with, that I'm not sure if it was an NDE or not. I mean, I, I dreamt, I had dreams and I had hallucinations and I can tell the difference between them. But I've got two that I'm just not sure about. Happened after your NDE or before? Well, see, I had three. Three that I, that I, and I never died. Okay. I, I never flatlined. Are you talking about during a year ago, your illness, you had three? COVID. Yeah, COVID. You're my period you you had three NDEs during that COVID event? That I'm positive, and you can help me with this. Okay. I'm positive that they were NDEs. Okay. Um, you want to get started? Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah. How would you like okay. me to start my when I got sick and my little bit about my yeah. when was well, so it was what last year March March yeah today uh, uh, tomorrow actually is is when wow. I was admitted to the hospital my uh, oldest son's birthday is tomorrow oh really yeah March twenty sixth yeah I got sick probably about ten days before I was admitted to the hospital and I didn't feel real well um, almost like I had the flu. And I went to my family practice doctor and I said, hey, you know, I'm not feeling well. I got low grade fever. Um, uh, I'm not eating, lost my smell. Uh, you know, I can't smell things. Uh, lost my taste for food. I'm going down the, the line. And uh, I said, uh, can I get tested for this COVID? And at that time it was the standard, well, I don't know, what was it? Five or six questions. Have you traveled? Have you, you know? Yeah. No, 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 no. He goes, no, nah, he goes, you have the flu. Just go home and rest. You'll be, you'll be fine. So that was on a Monday. And uh, uh, actually today on the 25th, I was so sick and so nauseous that I went back down to my family practice doctor. And um, I saw a physician assistant who works there and told him, look, I'm not feeling well. Can I get tested for COVID? 
He went down the questions. No, no, no. And he goes, no, you've got the flu. Go home and rest. Come back in a week if you don't feel better. So the next day, which would have been tomorrow, which will be tomorrow, um, my daughter came to check on me. And she called my youngest daughter, who's the nurse. And she said, dad doesn't look good. He looks gray. And uh, I don't know what to do. So she said, take him to the emergency room. So went down to the emergency room and my, my pulse oxygen level was down to 82. And between 95 and 100 is normal. And mine was way down to 92. And I had bilateral. 82? Yeah, 82. And uh, I had bilateral pneumonia. Um, and they admitted me right, you know, pretty, pretty quickly. They put me back in an isolation room and everything. And they admitted me to the hospital. And that was on a Friday, Thursday of last year. Um, by And I maxed out the ventilator. They, put, they did an emergency uh, surgery for the ventilator that Saturday. Um, and because my, my oxygen levels were so low and um, my x-ray showed that my lungs were completely full of those glass shards that were so common with, are so common with COVID. And um, so they did emergency intubation and I went on the ventilator. And uh, within a, about 48 hours, I had maxed out the ventilator. They had it up to the maximum settings and uh, my kidneys started to fail. So they air, airlifted me over to a larger hospital and uh, I went straight into surgery for um, ECMO and they put me on an ECMO machine. And ECMO is very similar to a heart-lung bypass machine. And they, they put it through your jugular vein, goes down into your heart. And what it does is actually remove your blood, oxygenates it, and puts it back into your, your body. So it gives your heart and your lungs a chance to try to rest and um, heal. Because by that time, I had gone into complete respiratory failure uh, and, um, um, and, and die out. my kidneys failed. And... Um, they put me on dialysis for that. And my liver start enzymes were very high and I started to uh, push out blood clots, which is very familiar. And um, since this, and my, my family didn't even know this, but since this, I've gotten my medical records and I was able to look at through those and um, with the help of my daughter and come to find out that my heart was enlarged and started to fail as well. So um, some time along there, and this was before Easter of last year, um, they called my family up and said that they'd only give me about a 3% chance of surviving. And, um, you know, maybe they should start making some plans. And my uh, family is very resistant. They weren't ready to lose me yet. And um, they fought uh, and um, got me convalescent plasma. And uh, I was given convalescent plasma on um, uh, Good Friday. And I, I apologize if I, if I stop and start and stutter because it's, yeah. it's an effect of COVID. Um, so Good Friday. You're doing good. Oh, thank you. Um, good Friday, they gave me um, convalescent plasma on Good Friday. And 
The next day, within 24 hours, they were able to cap the ECMO machine. In other words, my lungs started to respond and my pulse oxygen rate went up so high they were able to start weaning me off the, the ECMO. By Easter, they started, my, my kidney started to function again fully and they were able to um, start weaning me off the dialysis. And I think that Monday or Tuesday, I came off dialysis fully. Monday, I came off ECMO uh, and they started to wean me off the um, ventilator uh, that week as well. And I would eventually be able to, that Thursday or so, I finally came off the ventilator. So I find the, uh, the turnaround Good Friday and Easter interesting. Yeah, I know. That's, um, um, yeah, a lot of people have commented on that, you know, and um, yeah, I think um, I, so it was during that period, they put me in a coma, obviously, because I was pretty agitated and fighting and they gave me medicine to paralyze me because I was fighting the tubes and I was restrained. And um, um, so I, I know my hallucinations that I suffered because of the drugs that they given me. Um, one of them is kind of comical. I remember waking up one time or not waking up, but you know, my consciousness was, was alive. And I remember looking up at the ceiling and um, I said to him, and there was, there was lightning bolts, uh, real um, um, large and colorful lightning bolts that were, you know, streaking around. And I said to myself, I must, I must be dead. Um, I must be dead. And I, I closed my eyes and reopened them again. And when I closed my eyes, then I saw the lightning bolts. But then when I opened my eyes the second time, I saw eight dancing panda bears <laughs> on the ceiling and they were dancing to this God awful music that was playing in the background. And I said, okay, I'm dead. I've got to decide <laughs> if I want to live, if I want to exist in the world of lightning bolts or if I want to re reside in the world of dancing pandas. And I said, either one, I'm dead and I must be in hell if I have to watch this for eternity. <laughs> but I, I came out of that. Maybe it was forcing you. Maybe it was, you know, just a way to force you out of your head because you didn't like what you were seeing. Yeah. So kind of push you out. Push me out. Um, just a guess. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, that was in my dreams, my dreams that I had all involved my family. And of course, they're all alive. My wife, my daughters, their in-laws and, and some are uh, not in-laws, but uh, their husbands, they're all alive. So my dreams involved them. Um, so I knew that what dreams were and what hallucinations were. Kind of like maybe you were given a choice. What to live for. I'm just guessing. I'm yeah. just, my, this is the way my mind works. Yeah. Um, um, no, I'm open. Because you know, you're seeing your family, what to live for. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, in all different type of settings and things, and um, but my NDEs. Uh, uh, now that I've come to learn about NDEs and, and what I saw is because I was very when I came out, I had ICU delirium because I was in there for so long. And um, does that um, continue? I've heard with COVID, sometimes that continues. Well, I am seeing, um, I, I came out with PTSD and, and, and delirium. And um, 
PTSD from the delirium memories? I had, I had some PTSD because of um, being in the military for 20 years. Okay. Um, it's not hard to continue it, is it? I'm like sorry, add on. Yeah. I had PTSD from childhood and I think yeah. something traumatic happens. It's not hard yeah. to add on to that PTSD. Well, it's funny you should say that because my father died when I was young. I was 15 years old when he passed away. And my wife has always said that that was so traumatic for me that I still carry a lot of the, the burden and the, the sense of responsibility. He died of a heart attack, but we were on vacation. Mm. And um, um, I was the only one there that could possibly have saved him. And I didn't, I couldn't. And I've lived with that. And um, she always said that that's continued to bother me and to affect me. I wonder if your NDEs will help with that, knowing what it's like. Tremendously. Yeah, awesome. I will get. Yeah, because like so many people I'm learning now, they're absolutely afraid of death. And so was I. Absolutely afraid of dying to the point where I would go into panic attacks. I'd actually go into myself and I hated the thought of it. And that was from my whole family. I don't know about my dad because obviously he passed away, but my mom was that way. Could not talk to her about what her final wishes were. You couldn't talk about death at all to her. She would just panic, start to cry, and then would just walk away from you. She just refused to. And that was one of, that's one of my healing I, uh, that, that I have learned from this. Like I, I have no fear now, none, okay. you know, no fear at all. You and, can't fear the unknown when it's not unknown. Oh, exactly. And, and, and that, and because I saw relatives, you know, you're going to see your family again. It's not that you're, you know, they're not going to ever come back uh, and you're never going to see them again before. Um, now, in my case, they didn't, they didn't interact with me. Um, because I think I surprised them. I think I wasn't supposed to be there. I was told I wasn't supposed to be there um, in one of my NDEs. So how did the NDE begin? Yep. I'm sorry. Okay. Your um, first one. Yeah. The first one that, that uh, and I don't know what chronological order these came in. Oh, okay. The way that I, understand. I, I, I put them together. Um, I remember myself being in a very dark, um, open area. And um, like a tunnel opened up. And when I first came out of my coma, I explained it to my daughter that I thought I was on an airplane because it, it, was, it was that type of a um, shape to it. You know, like a- like Was there a, noise? No, was there it noise? was quiet. Okay. It was very quiet. Um, and I was traveling through the tunnel. The, the tunnel wasn't traveling mm -hmm. with me. I was traveling through you the- Up or side? Um, uh, horizontally okay yeah. out and that's the way it felt out. like out and away yeah out and away and sporadically there were small little windows i call them windows uh along each side of the tunnel and outside of the tunnel there was this very bright miraculous light it was just so brilliant and shined and and you could actually feel some of the warmth you know inside of the tunnel from it but the light didn't come into the tunnel. It stayed on the outside. And I was curious about that. Why isn't this light shining in? Because I could be honest, I had no idea where I was at. I understand. And 
I exited the tunnel and I was in a magnificent hall, a big, beautiful, gorgeous room, um, all gold, gold and, and clear glass. And it had beautiful, beautiful crystal looking chandeliers. And uh, what were you at that time? Could you see yourself? No, I could not Did see. Did you myself. notice? Did you look down notice, and notice? No, I didn't notice my hands, okay. the feet. It was just pure consciousness. Okay. In that realm. Did you and, think I'm dead at that point or any of these points? Um, shortly thereafter, after I arrived, because of the individual that approached me, somebody oh. was with me. Somebody was with me, and I didn't know who it was. In the tunnel? No, no, when I exited into the room. Okay, when you got in the room, somebody was the there. Room. I felt somebody was with me. I couldn't see them. I just okay. strongly felt their presence. Okay. And I felt the presence of other spirits in this hall. But I don't remember seeing them. But I Did felt you feel the, the distance they were from you? Yes. They were, they were some distance away. It was almost like if I was standing on uh, like an entranceway and these steps went down into this open room and they were all down around, you know. They were below you? Below me in this open area, this big, beautiful, you know, hall that I was in. And I remember looking. Was there, was there a crowd? Was there a few? Could you tell? I knew that, I, like I said, I couldn't see okay. them but i felt them and i knew there were right. many there many there okay many there. i understand and um this gentleman floats up to me human from the waist up um long flowing like um cloth or a, a robe you know below no legs and that's when i said i've got to be dead <laughs> you know okay i have to be <laughs> what is going on, you know? And he came up to me and we started talking about the room. And I said to him, I said, this room is undescribable. It's, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And he goes, yes, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's so pretty and, and well, you know, and, and it looks so nice, you know? And he said, but um, you're not supposed to be here. And I said, what do you mean? I'm not, what do you, well, and he goes, no, you have to leave. You're not supposed to be here. And he, he pointed me to these doors. And the doors, again, were just magnificent. Very tall, very large, um, uh, framed in gold, you know, transparent, etched glass, and just a beautiful, beautiful doors. And I walked out these doors and went down, oh, maybe about six or seven steps. And I was at street level. And I, I looked out over the street. And what are you seeing? So you've seen something now. Is this the first you actually, you sent something before, and other than the doors, this I, is the I, first you really see uh, an environment? Yeah, besides seeing the inside of the hall. And the half guy. And the half guy. I remember looking at the doors and then I exited the doors into a city. Oh, and you got full view. Full view. Absolutely magnificent. Tell me everything. Beautiful. <laughs> Paint me a picture. City. And um, I remember it had area, the, the, the streets were just immaculate. 
and they were uh, they weren't like um, and you're the first person to ask me this. They weren't um, uh, asphalt. You know what I mean? They weren't dark mm -hmm. asphalt. They were like a clear uh, substance of some some type. Um, mm. The buildings were just gold and clear glass and, you know, all different type of sizes of buildings immaculately kept. Um, there was green space with just beautiful green grass, green areas, just absolutely beautiful. And it was, it was a lot of, it was silent, but there was people around. There was no automobiles or cars or anything. Simon, what? It was silent. It was silent. real quiet, quiet, no noise gotcha. whatsoever. But I knew that there were people around. I knew was there, there sky? Presence. Um, I didn't visualize the sky right away. Okay. I did later, but not right away because I walked down the steps and started to walk through the, the city and just taking in this beautiful ornate uh, buildings and, and, you know, just in all of the sheer beauty of this place. And I remember getting tired and, um, um, I felt lost. I said, got I said, tired. Well, I got tired and I got lost. And I said, uh oh, how am I going to find my way back? Um, like you didn't see any people. You're just I alone did, in this. I felt people. I oh. felt their presence because when I sat down, I finally sat down and I, I eventually found myself laying down in the gutter on the side of the road. And I said to myself, why are these people, no one's helping me. I'm laying here and these people are walking past and I felt their presence. I didn't see them, I, but, and no one is stopping to help me. I don't understand why aren't they helping me? How am I going to get back? I'm lost. And I was, I felt cold. I felt very cold. And that's the first time. That's when I realized, um, I visualized my body. I had hands, I had feet at that time and I'm laying there and I said how am I going to get back and I, I looked over and I saw a magnificent white set of stairs going up into the sky and that's when I noticed of uh, the sky because these steps went as far as the eye could see they went up through the clouds and went right up into this magnificent blue glowing sky but it's not it wasn't our blue it was it, it was a different blue and it just glowed in light and warmth you know and i said if i can make myself if i can get over to those steps i'm going to be able to maybe climb high enough where somebody would could see me so i walked over to those steps and i started to crawl up these white steps and I heard somebody yell, there he is, there's Randy, get him. And somebody grabbed me by the, my shirt collar and just whisked me off of those steps. It was just a whisk me right off the steps. And, and I was back into darkness and that was kind of the end, if you will, of that particular episode, you know? Um, I think I was in the Hall of Records. Now that I've learned you know what it, how it's been others have described it when you were walking around the that when city I first you came out of the when i first came out of the tunnel uh-huh you know in that big magnificent room that i was in 
I believe that was the Hall of Records. Okay. Um, because of the way it's described, you know, tiered okay. and beautiful gold and gold chandeliers and things. And um, when I exited, it was probably in the in the city of God or the new, what others call the New Jerusalem, is where I was. I feel like I was walking around and and getting lost in, um, and I was pulled back from there. You know, um, the second one I had was somewhat familiar to, somewhat similar to the, to to, 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 to I'm sorry, to the first. Um, I went back to that same city. I found myself in that same city and I was, and I was walking around again, but I was in a different section of the city. These buildings weren't as large uh, as where I was previously. Uh, they weren't as big, they're just as beautiful. And it was just as well maintained. Oh, you, yeah. When you went back, you started out in the city. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I went through, I'm sorry, I went through the tunnel. Oh, again? Again. But this time I didn't exit it in that hall. I exited into the, into the city. Okay. And um, again, I felt the presence of other people. Um, and I was in a different section of the city. And, um, and I think that's why when I first came to, they first brought me out of my coma, I think that's why I described them as two different cities to my, my kids, because I didn't know where I was. And my own point of reference was, well, I think I was in Paris and I think I was in London. Because at that time, that was my only reference, you know. Was, have you been to those places? I have. Okay. Nothing like them, you know. I mean, the city I was at was not anything like what I, where I was. Okay. Um, uh, they were both somewhat dirty and unkept and you know, noise and everything. This was just absolutely so peaceful, both times, so peaceful, so quiet. Um, you felt acceptance. I could feel acceptance. Um, but I'm wondering because I, because the, the individual told me I'm not supposed to be there, I had to leave. I'm just wondering, uh, and it's been suggested that, you know, maybe I couldn't see him because I wasn't supposed to be there. You know, I, I, I started to relay this like I'm the, I was the uninvited dinner guest that just happened to show up and they didn't expect me. So it's like, uh oh, what are you doing here? And, you know, they bring Uncle Harry over to say, hey, Uncle, entertain this guy for a few minutes and then show him the door, you know. But that half guy saw you. He did. And he approached me, you know, and we, he, I, 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 I almost felt that he was in charge somehow. You know what I mean? He was, because he. Yeah, to, to say you room. shouldn't be here. Yeah, he talked that about kind of commands. Right. You know, you're not supposed to hear, you need to leave. And uh, yeah, almost like a gatekeeper, maybe. And um, um, that's a good, my wife just suggested that. That's a good reference, almost like a gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't, yeah. let me, wouldn't let me in any further. So um, now the second time you're in a different part of the city. In a different part of the city. It was just as beautiful. I mean, just as clean and peaceful and quiet and just glowed with this magnificent light and warmth. And um, um, it didn't la I felt it didn't last as long as the first one, because I said to myself, I know where those steps are. And if I can get back to those steps, 
somebody can find me again. So it's exactly what I did as I walked. Was you thinking at that time, any of that time, like, okay, you know, you realize you're dead, but was you thinking I'm in heaven? No, because I didn't think I have a, I didn't think I had, I didn't have any reference. Okay. You know? Did you remember who you were? Like, um, did you remember I'm in the hospital? Why am I here? I mean, no, no. it was like you a clean slate. Yeah. Almost like a clean slate. Like where, okay. where am I? Why am I here? Okay. Um, you know, I want to go back to my family, any of that. Oh, so you remembered you had a family. Yeah. But that okay. didn't dawn on me that, you know, um, kind of where I was because growing okay. up, we weren't very religious. Um, you know, we didn't really have a good, strong religious background to what about now? reference on. Has this oh, changed? Changed completely. You know, my daughter's, my daughter's, um, my, my wife was Catholic and she was in Catholic school and all of our kids went through Catholic school. Um, and we, we, we were unfortunately the Christmas and Easter bunch, you know? Yeah. And um, when I grew, and that wasn't until I married my wife 48 years ago. Um, my family growing up started out as a Christmas Easter bunch. And then that, when we moved to Florida, that kind of, when I was about six years old, seven years old, that kind of weaned off and just stopped, you know? And we really didn't go to church or pray or discuss God in any way. So I, I, I think that has some type of a reference, you know, I didn't have a That's reference. funny. That's funny. It's like you were, church was a building. It wasn't a relationship. And yeah. you're in the ease. You were like around the buildings, but there was not relationships. Yeah. I mean, then maybe that's like a metaphor of your spirituality. You were in the building, but it wasn't in your heart. It wasn't in my heart to be there or understand what was happening to me. So I refer back to the, just the references that I knew that I had experienced and were familiar with to initially describe where I was. But I now, now I know now that I wasn't in London or I wasn't in Paris, you know, my spirit had gone up. My consciousness had gone up, you know, to heaven. For sure. Did you, did this at any time move into anything more than the buildings, the streets, the view, the well, doors? I, my my third one is different. Oh, okay. Completely different. Now was that into the second one there, just yes. walking around yes. again, and then well, just suddenly back? back. The, I went back to the steps. Uh, I I knew oh. where the steps were, and okay. I said, "How am I going to get out of here?" And then it dawned on me: I know where those steps are. If I can find my way back to the steps, somebody will find me. So I found my way back to those steps and the same thing happened. I started to climb up those steps again and it was, hey, Randy, he's right there getting, and somebody grabbed me from the back and just pulled me right off of those, again. Of those steps. <laughs> same thing, you know? And, and so the second one was there, it happened, but it was, I felt it was much smaller, shorter. If I had to put a time on it, it didn't last okay. as long as, the first one did. Okay. This one I'm going to tell you now is the one that I love the most. Um, I didn't transition through a tube or anything. I, I remember that I was standing in somewhat of a, of a open, um, 
and I'm going to use the term dark, but it was a glowing dark, um, uh, open field of some sort. And um, I'm, I was trying to figure out where I was when I felt the presence of someone beside me. And no words were, no words were spoken, um, but I knew telepathically that I was supposed to follow this person. And we, um, I don't, I didn't feel like I was walking. I, I felt almost like I was gliding through this open space. And I looked off to my left and it was almost like, um, I use this, I explain it this way. You're looking at a very dark stage and all of a sudden the spotlight comes on and hits an actor. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden you see the actor sitting there this light came on, this real brilliant warmth light came on. And my mother-in-law, who passed away several years ago, was sitting there at a, at a bar. A beautiful, it almost looked like a beautiful oak engraved bar. Was she a drinker in life? Uh, not a big drinker. No, no. Um, yeah, occasional some wine and stuff, but not, okay. not a big drinker. She was all dressed in white beautiful white dress on um, much younger she passed away was in her 70s and she was much younger probably 30-ish maybe if I had to give it an age um, she had long dark hair and hair she had all of her hair pulled up and a, a beautiful white uh, ribbon you know of some sort around her head and there's just a beautiful flowing I didn't see any legs or anything because it was covered up by this beautiful flowing white dress that she had on and she was sitting there very straight and I used the term royal because as she was sitting there she had an elbow on it and she was just sitting there very in a very royal uh, stature you know and uh, and she she glanced over at me momentarily and then looked away and she was looking off uh, to her would have been her left she was kind of looking off to her her left and then behind this bar um this individual who came running along and he was knocking all the bottles off of the back of the bar and i recognized him immediately that was my brother-in-law mark who had also passed away uh unfortunately from a drug overdose several years ago and he was a hooligan in uh, in in life and um so he was a hooligan in, in heaven as well because he was knocking all these bottles off and he ran past his, his mom and uh, I just kind of ran out of sight, you know, but I saw him very briefly. And all of a sudden that, that light went off and we continued on. Again, I felt I, need, I was supposed to follow this person and we continued on and we came up to an invisible barrier of some sort. And I felt that I couldn't go any further, that there was something in front of me that I couldn't progress any further, invisible. My one daughter told me, well, dad, that was the veil of death, you know, and you weren't allowed or you weren't supposed to pass through this veil. And I remember seeing off to my left-hand side, these three figures, and I saw them before, and, and when we started to walk again, I saw him, but as we walked down, 
and we approached this barrier, they got better into focus and that I could see them better. And I realized that it was my mom and my dad and my sister, um, all three of had passed away. And my dad had his back to me and my mom and my sister were facing me. And my dad looked at me and then quickly turned away. And my mother and my sister uh, turned their backs. And I couldn't understand why they weren't talking to me, why they wouldn't um, acknowledge my presence, you know, and why weren't they speaking? I knew it was them. And why weren't they talking with me? I couldn't understand that. Um, and they were standing there and all of a sudden that, that, that light kind of started to dim. And I was, remember saying, you know, I don't want to lose them. I don't want them to go, but that, that light just slowly dimmed out. And then I, all of a sudden I felt on my right hand side, this presence of a person approaching me. And I looked, and again, he was human from the waist up, um, younger man, uh, probably, again, 30-ish, maybe young 40s, dark hair, full head of dark hair. And he approached me, and the bottom half of him, again, was a very long, flowing robe sort of thing, some type of a linen you know, robe on the bottom. And a barrier, there was definitely a barrier still between us. And he came up and he stopped right in front of me. And he says, as clear as what you and I are talking, tell Madison at the salon, her grandfather is okay. I didn't know who this person was. I had no idea who he was. Um, never saw her, but telepathically, I felt that he was a veteran. I just knew that he was a veteran. I'm a veteran and I just knew he was as well. And he, he's, then he glided over, and I say glide because he wasn't walking. He kind of glided over, flew over onto a white porch. And he sat down next to another figure that had sort of a human outline to it, but it, I couldn't make out anything of that person. But he sat down next to somebody else. And they were both making red, white, and blue ribbons and American flags at the time, both making those. And, um, and I sat and I watched them for a while doing that. And then this spirit that was next to me, um, again, I just telepathically, it was like, okay, you have to go. You have to go. And that was the end of, of that particular session. So when I, I came true uh, in the hospital, um, I told my daughter about these and she said, dad, who's Madison? I said, I don't know. She goes, do you know a Madison? She, no, I don't know a Madison. And salon is not a word that I use, you know, even, you know, when my, uh, you know, my hair, my wife's going to go get her hair done or I'm going to go to the barbershop. So I don't use the word salon. And she goes, well, what salon? How are we going to find this Madison? And I said, I don't know. I said, but I feel like I have to. I feel I have a responsibility because I was entrusted with this message. And I just feel like I have to get this message to her somehow. So 
I was released from the hospital. I was here at home and I had to learn to walk again because of COVID. And I had to learn to swallow and eat and everything again. And um, I came out on my walker. My daughter was in our living room and I handed her a card um, that I had picked up from a local barbershop some time ago. I said, it's, she asked me how long I've had the card and, you know, months. It was back in my closet. I almost forgotten about it. But I, my hair was obviously long from being in the hospital for six weeks. And um, I said, can you call them and find out if they're cutting hair with this COVID, you know, and what their protocol is for it. So she called and she came back and she goes, dad, I made you an appointment. And I said, okay, good. And um, she said, have you looked at this card? And I said, it's been back in my closet for months. I said, you know, I just remembered that I had it. And uh, she goes, but have you looked at it? I said, what are you talking about? And she goes, she handed me the card. And I flipped the card over and on the front of the card was Madison Logan on the card. So she called, I said, you got to make an appointment with Madison. Excuse me. You're fine, hon. I'm sitting here freezing in goosebumps when you uh, told me, and I heard it before on the radio uh, program you did, but I'm re-remembering now, and I'm now that I know the whole thing, I'm seeing the significance of, you know, you didn't really see anybody until that person, and you come back with this message. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like, is this why all this happened? Well, and that's what I'm starting to think, is that, you know, I mean, address that so i my my daughter called and she made an appointment with madison and we went down for the appointment my daughter went with me and you know i don't have a whole lot of hair to begin with and whenever i go to a barber shop i just take whoever's available i don't have anybody you know and I, so i remembered seeing this young lady and madison and i obviously are good friends now and we talk. It's fine, huh? It's, it's beautiful is what it is. Yes. Yeah. It's very beautiful. And um, You're fine. I'm sorry. It's okay. <clears throat> and uh, she said she may, may have cut my hair once or twice before but nothing on a regular basis, you know? And I didn't know who she was and she really didn't know who I was. <clears throat> so um, I asked her, I said, can I ask you some personal questions? And she said, well, of course. So my daughter went ahead and explained to her what I had been through COVID wise, you know, how, how sick I was and all that. And I said to her, I said, uh, Madison, I said, I think your grandfather approached me. And uh, he has a message for you. Well, first of all, before I did all that, I'm sorry. But first of all, I, I asked her, I said, I had to verify to myself if what I saw was real. And I said, Madison, I said, um, are both your grandfathers alive? And she goes, no, she says, um, Next month would have been June last 
June 2019. She goes, no, my one grandfather that I was kind of close to passed away suddenly a year ago. And uh, I said, oh, I, you know, sorry to hear that. And I said, where does he live? And she goes, oh, all of my family is in Iowa. She says, I'm the only one down here um, in Florida. She goes, my um, now husband, fiance at that time, is a doctor of physical therapy locally. And um, she goes, you know, we're going to get married. And I came down here, went, you know, with him. But all of my family is in Iowa. And I said, well, um, I said, was he a veteran? And she goes, oh, yes, he was a veteran. She said he served in Vietnam and very, very involved with um, the American Legion in, in our hometown. <clears throat> so I said, Madison, I said, I think your grandfather approached me and um, he gave me a message for you. And I told her, I said, Madison, you know, your grandfather wants to know it's okay. I must be having a bad COVID date because I'm normally I can get you're beautiful. normally I can get through this. You're absolutely beautiful. Don't apologize. <clears throat> I think it's since you too. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and I said, Madison, I said, and she's crying. I'm crying, and my daughter's crying. People in the barber shop or salon were looking at us like we're crazy, you know. And um I said, Madison, you know, your grandfather told me that he's okay. Tell Madison at the salon he's okay. And I said, Madison, I said, <clears throat> there was a white porch involved. I said, he, 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 he went over and he got onto the white porch. Is that significant? Is the white porch important? And she said, that would have been his house in Iowa. She said, he has a white porch. And when he retired, he would sit on the white porch and talk to people and things as they came by and would like to look at the cars and you know everything from the white porch. She goes, so that's gotta be his white porch in Iowa. And I said, well, he was making, I said, he was sitting there with somebody else and they were making red, white, and blue ribbons and American flags. And she took a step back from me and her eyes got like saucers and, you know, she's wearing a mask, so I couldn't see her facial expression, but her eyes were huge. And um, she said he belonged to the American Legion. And every Veterans Day, the whole family, you'd get the whole family together, and they would go down to the uh, American Legion, and they would all make red, white, and blue ribbons and flags for the veterans' graves. I just can't help but wonder if he wasn't rewarded in heaven for doing that by giving this opportunity to have a messenger. Yeah. Visit well, I was his messenger. And, um, and, um, um, yeah. So Madison, I went back down to see Madison a few weeks later and, um, asked her if she had a chance to share her story with her family and she goes, oh my God, she goes, they're all discussing it. And she goes, come to find out, my grandmother told me that this is the second time that her husband had sent her a message from heaven. And I said, well, what was the first time? 
And she goes, well, when he died, she was going through some of his personal belongings and found a, a business card from an insurance company with a gentleman's name and phone number just handwritten on it. <clears throat> so she called. <clears throat> and it took her three or four telephone calls to get through. And um, the man finally answered. And he goes, yes. He goes, that's my number. That's my name. But I have nothing to do with this insurance company. Nothing. And... And she goes, well, my husband passed away. And, um, you know, I found this card. He goes, wait a second. Is your first name Kathy? And he goes, She's, yes. And he goes, six months ago, I got into a very bad motorcycle accident and almost died. And during that motorcycle accident, she says, I think your husband came to me. And he said, when Kathy calls you, tell her that her husband is okay. And that's the second time that this person had. Now, I, I have talked to her grandmother several times now, a few times, and um, um, they're all excited, you know, about um, the two messages. And then she told me, she filled me in a little bit more on John's death. And um, he died very suddenly from a heart attack. And she was not home. And she came home briefly and to pick something up. And she yelled at him. She goes, John, she goes, I'll be back. And he goes, okay, I'll see you when you get back. And when she got back, not 15 minutes later, her daughter called her and said that John had collapsed on the floor. And by the time she got back home, he was, he was gone. He was dead. And talking with her, and I told her the other day on the phone that I almost feel like my circle has been completed. That um, I feel so much more at peace giving her that message and be able to talk to her. And I think that my, my dad died very suddenly, you know, um, in a hotel room. Massive heart attack. Massive heart attack. He died very suddenly of a massive heart attack didn't get an opportunity to say goodbye. And I think somehow through this individual, he knew Kathy was going to call through Madison. He knew that somehow I associated with Madison and that I would get a message to Madison who would get a message back to her grandmother. And I really so this guy, in the, I'm sorry, this uh, guy in the motorcycle accident, he had an NDE? Yes. And got yes. Any interest in talking to him? Oh yeah, yeah. That's my next conversation with with uh, uh, Madison's grandmother is going, and you know, um, I go slowly with her. You know, I, I don't want to require too much out of her because she's just still. Started talking to her. Yeah, I just started talking to her, and um, you know, emotionally, I know it's still pretty raw sure. with her, so I don't want to get too much too quick you know, through it. So it's just going to be in little, little information. But I told her, I said, I feel so much at peace now that I, one, I've talked to her and that I was able to relay that information to her through Madison. And then again, you know, personally. A lot of healing. Yeah. Um, from yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, come to find out, you had mentioned earlier that he was rewarded for his work at American Legion. Uh, Kathy was telling me that he was a highly decorated war veteran 
uh, two Purple Hearts. Um, I, she, she had mentioned that she thought that um, he was the most highly decorated individual in Iowa. Saved his platoon, saved his uh, his commander, you know. And I want to get more into that with her as well. I'm interested in that, but he was very, very highly decorated uh, Vietnam, you know, veteran and had very strong feelings about the way Vietnam veterans were treated when they got back from, from that particular war and made the trip up to Washington to see the memorial and everything. And she said it was very emotional on him that way. So I think that's all connected, you know, um, the way my dad died, the way he dad hit her grandfather died, you know, him sending a message back saying, Hey, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye, but I'm, okay. I'm using my messengers to let you know that I am, I am okay. You know, and I love that story. And, um, yes. um, every time I see Madison, I tell her, I said, Madison, they're building a house behind us. And I tell Madison, I said, Madison, you made the old tough construction workers cry today. You know, <laughs> and uh, he's a good kid. Good, good kid. Have you thought about writing this all down somewhere? Publishing it? Well, I'm trying to write a book. Um, I'm not a writer, though, you know, and um, I was going to ask. None you, of us NDE years are. I was going to ask you for some help in that area. Okay, I'll help you. Okay. Um, yeah. What I did was, um, kids was grown. My husband, we were staying in a camper because my husband was working away. So I had a lot of time, not a quiet time alone. And I just, I mine, I, I, I had a vision one day because um, I had PTSD from childhood. And um, I tried writing it down in notebooks. I was trying to get it out of me. I wanted it away from me. It wouldn't go away from me. Nobody wanted to hear my stories, you know, of abuse. And yeah. um, I had these spiritual experiences too. Of course, nobody wanted to hear that either. Being out of Southeast Ohio, it's not like California. Or, oh, well, that's cool. We understand that. No, nobody understood any of anything that happened to me. And so I just wanted to get away from me. So I'd stop being a burden to everybody. Like yeah. I was like on a record player, it was broke. I kept replaying, replaying. I just wanted it out of me. And so I wrote it all down and I went to bed one night, you know, put it all away on the mantle at the, in the camper. And I got up the next morning, my husband went to work and I looked and I thought, I'd still hear, you know, it's all one, all these horrible memories is one. And a lot of bad stuff has happened to me. I've been a victim of a lot of things. And mm. I thought, you know, everybody won. I'm like waving the white flag. And then all of a sudden I got this vision, which took over my sight. And I saw myself as I'm looking down and I see me from behind as a younger woman and I'm in the Creek and I'm picking up bits of light out of the um, Creek. Uh-huh. And as the more I picked up these bits of light, the more light it grew. And, and it was just like this message, this way of this telepathic message saying to me, you know, just like there's this dark curtain and it just moved to the side and there was just light. And I like, I, like, I get it now. I have been so obsessed with all these dark memories. What about the good? Let's put yeah. them aside for a while. And let's look at the good. And I got my laptop and I just started writing what I did because I'm not a writer either. And as I put, and I never intended to publish, it was just going to be for my kids, like leave a legacy of, you know, read about grandma's life hundred years from now. And so I just pretended there was a person standing behind my laptop 
And I started at the beginning, I was telling that person. And that person stayed with me, you know, in my mind the whole time. I'm telling. And, you know, I started out as with my first memory. This was for me. You know, you probably mm -hmm. want to do it differently. Uh -huh. um, but for me, I needed the I needed the quiet because I'm easily distracted. I needed the quiet. And I I did that for three months. I took time to eat and sleep hardly, you know, and I was done in three months, which is unheard of. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I never intended to publish. I was just going to print it out and put it in a binder, which I did. But I took it with me to Ian's group. And that woman has written books. And um, and I was holding on to it after the meeting. I said, here's my baby. You know? <laughs> so I understand how you feel. Well, after it was like a Saturday, like Monday, she sent me an email. And she said, why don't you contact my editor or my publisher? And he's a former monk. And he um, had written a, a book and he couldn't get it published. And so he decided to start his own publishing company. And so I was really hesitant, I was scared to call him because this is like stepping out of my league. Mm -hmm. You know, with this NDE, we're stepping out in a whole new field, a whole new realm, a whole new, you mm -hmm. know, everything. Really stepping out of my league here. Like, who do I think I am when I publish a book? I can hardly spell. I mean, I had trouble with spelling my whole life, even through college. And we, we have some familiar background. <laughs> but, but let me tell you something there's nothing an editor can't fix. <laughs> Sorry. My alarm clocks. <laughs> it's fine. We can add it. Doorbells. Yeah. And so I, um, so I, so she says, call my editor. So I, I call or my publisher. So I called him and I said, well, he says, well, email it to me. And I said, well, I'm not sure if it's worthy. And he said, it's worthy because you're worthy. And that touched my heart like you wouldn't believe. And I sent it to him and he got back with me and he says, it needs a lot of deep, deep editing. He says, but he says, I don't know how you did this. He says, unheard of for a first time author to have such an authentic voice. And, and he said, you don't like, woe is me. He says, you just tell it, you know, stuff that happened. You just tell it. And I, uh, you know, and he says, you are showing people that you don't have to be a saint to have these experiences. And um, he says, it's deeply tragic yet divine. Wow. And so I found it. I thought, how do, how do I find an editor? I don't anything about an editor. So I went to uh, Marietta College and I said, how do you find an editor? I must have asked. That's too shy to even ask the late library. And she gave me a phone number and that phone number led to somebody, you know, somebody not far from here in Parkersburg, West Virginia. And we met and, and she takes these stories and she sends them to other people to do throughout the world you know and she's i'm keeping this one this one's mine you know yeah. and she said i couldn't put it down she's i took the book to the bathroom with me and i'm telling you when you write you start to write your story i believe god helps us mm -hmm. i believe these experiences are divine and we are sent back to give a message and we will get help with giving that message i'm an extremely shy person and really like usually i'm lost for words but when I go to tell my NDE, whether I go up on a stage or I went to see Dr. Oz two years ago, yeah. um, or if it's just sitting around a campfire talking to a couple people or just, you know, when I start telling my NDE and I don't know if you know, you got choked up while ago, 
that comes back. There's some, it's like we bring the light back with us. And when you tell your story, have that light with you and it will be effortless. It's almost, I told my son the other day, I said, it's almost like I step out of the way and somebody else steps in. Mm. And I don't worry about making mistakes because it doesn't make mistakes in that realm. And, and you will you will find that out. Um, have you noticed any changes in, in you since your NDE? And the more you talk about your NDE, how you, do you feel differently? Do you get more insights? Like you have questions about um, your NDE and then suddenly, whoa, they're answered or, you know, I don't know what those would call, be um, called that. Yeah, almost like a, I haven't, re, not anything like telepathically. I have a tremendous urge to educate myself, you know, not only what I experienced and try to better interpret what I experienced, but now I'm, I'm fascinated with what God has said, you know, and, and that's why I like John Burke's book so well, Imagine Heaven, because he, he includes that in interpretations of his NDEs and, you know, the people that he has in, interviewed and gone through and everything. And then allows me to go back and look that up, you know, and read and better understand that passage. So spiritually, it's helped me tremendously, you know. Um, Let me tell you another little book. It's a tiny little book. Uh -huh. It's only cost you a dollar, probably. Return from Tomorrow. Okay. George Ritchie. Return you can from? Return from Tomorrow, George Ritchie. You can Google him. Um, you, he's got a little book out there. You might even be able to download it for free. Um, it's the best little thing yeah. I have found. Of all the important people or the doctors, uh, you know, even you, know, that has been, uh, he's passed away since. Okay. Um, that one out. Yeah. Uh, he, he was a veteran. Oh, really? And okay. he had his NDE. He was uh, getting out of the military to the military is putting him in to be a doctor to send oh. to medical school. But he had to be cleared medically first before they sent him. And he died of like ammonia. Mm. And later on, uh, after he was a doctor for quite a while, he wanted to become a psychiatrist. But you have to go through a, this panel of people to say, are you sane? And he had just come out about his NDE back when nobody did. And he was honest about his NDE during that psychological review. And he said, you know, if you would have said you'd made it up, we wouldn't have passed you through. He says, because you owned it and, and your in your conviction to it. And they passed him through and he became a psychiatrist as well. But um, his NDE is uh, very, um, wow. really gets you back in that realm. He was so deep into it. I, I wasn't, I mean, I didn't go as deep as many right me too i didn't go as deep as many because there's so many stories of you know meeting god and being escorted through different areas with god and i've got two of them two experiences that i'm still trying to figure out of exactly what um what happened and it was really from reading john burke's book that i suddenly realized well maybe that's where i was you know and if you have a minute real quick one of them um i remember 
walking up um, to this beautiful um, um, and this is the first time I've ever tried to even explain this one. So I'm, I don't know if my wife knows it or not, but I was walking up to this area. It was just so lush and beautiful, you know, with trees and, and flowers and it was absolutely beautiful. And a little boy approached. And again, someone was with me, a spirit of some sort, invisible, like I don't, but I'm, I felt their presence. And we walked up and, um, this little boy welcomed us and took us into uh, like a waiting area. Um, and we were sitting there and I remember looking out this window and this, and the only word I have for it right now, and this is a word I used initially with it, it was almost like a lazy river. It was a little river that kind of came out for it almost from underneath this room and it, I could see it kind of meandering and weaving through the distance, you know? And um, people were in it. I saw people uh, not in the inner tubes or anything like that, but people were in it and they were like over to the side and they were just had their hands, you know, rested or their head rested on their hands, you know? And they looked very, very much at peace and, and happy and um, talking with one another. And the, the sides of the uh, embankment were just brilliant flowers, just beautiful foliage, green and just all kinds of colors. And then these trees were sporadically um, down the river that bared fruit. And I remember looking at those and wondering what type of fruit trees they were and, you know, what I was, I was looking at, you know. Um, it sounds like you had maybe, I don't know if this is such a thing. I'm just making it up top of my head, but view of an observer. I was an observer. It sounds like you, yeah, you were an observer. It sounds like you had the view of an observer that you weren't fully immersed, maybe permitted, yeah. maybe uh huh, to yeah, be mean, there. I, yeah. I mean, I was so close. I was on the edge. You know, mm -hmm. uh, my heart gave every organ I had was going out, lungs, liver, kidneys, you know, they're all not full of my lungs. They were all malfunctioning. And I think, you know, that I thought that a couple of times that I was right there on the edge, you know, of going, you know. Um, my daughter, I told my daughter the other night at dinner, this particular story, I didn't describe it in detail. I. And she was wondering that little boy, my wife had two miscarriages before uh, my daughter was born. And she was just wondering if that was little boy was possibly, um, you know, one, from one of her miscarriages. Because he was a friendly little guy, you know. Could be. Real, you know, Jerry, you're very, and my daughter kept asking, what did he say to me? And I can't, I haven't pulled that out yet of what he, he said to me. You know. I know an indie ear who saw children of different ages and they just run up to him and just act like they just loved him. But he says he didn't know him. He really liked these little kids. And he got talking to his wife and she wondered they had IVF fail mm. and each age, you know, would have coincided. So, but, yeah. you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't you know. I don't know. I really so, guess. That one, so that one I'm not sure about. I'm not. No, I don't know where to put that one. You know, I didn't see anybody I knew. Like the boy the, didn't talk to you? 
He just walked along with you? No, he was talking and he was, and that's what I'm trying to pull out. I don't remember what he was saying to me. My daughter was tell, asking me that too, what he said. And I said, or, uh, Aaron, he was talking to me. I knew he was talking to me. And I just couldn't, I can't remember what he was saying. But I remember him kind of dancing and, you know, very jovial, big smile, you know, very animated. And um, um, yeah, so, and then looking at this river. So she was saying to me, I wonder if that was like the river of life that you saw. And it was the tree of trees of life, you know, with the fruit on it. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I don't know yet. So I got to work. The whole the, when you talk about this little boy and then when you talk about seeing people just from the waist up and you talk about like you're seeing things from an observer, but you're and then people like they're not seeing you, but you feel that they're there. What keeps coming to my mind is when I drowned when I was five, I went down the highway and there was two boys walking and I asked them, what are you doing? Where are you going? You know, and there was an older one, a younger one. And it's like they were ignoring me at first. And then the younger ones, but it was telepathic. I realized later when I'm having these memory, it's always the same, that it's always telepathic, that we're communicating. And so I was a ghost and I wasn't realizing that at that mm -hmm. moment, you know, and I'm asking this boy, hey, where are you going? Well, we got to hurry home. We were fishing and we got to get home. And then, oh, well, and then I went on flying down the highway and I found some kids in the yard to play with. And, you know, and I'm not realizing as this ghost kid, they can't see me. And it's almost like you only reverse because like the people, maybe the people in, in heaven can't see us in a live body, no more than we can see a spirits right beside us right now. Yeah. yeah. You know, and then I like see him half, half a person. It's almost like, you know, was, was that indication, you know, you're half in the half in that realm and you're half not. And what is so weird is just a couple days ago, a friend of mine in the ear, he used to be a newscaster and stuff. Um, he's on, he tells his story on my memories of dying video that I'll put on this too. But um, he showed a picture. He was driving down the road the other day, took a picture of himself in the car uh -huh. and he went to look at it and he posted what this picture looks like. He is in a house. He was in his car when he took this. In the picture, he's in this house. You can see the curtains. You can see this part of a fireplace and stuff. He's never been in this house before in his life. It's nowhere in his pictures, but he's half, his body's half cut off. Huh. It's like this whole side's gone. And it's like, what in the world? You know, oh, is yeah. this? And then when, then like the next day, I listened to your story and you hear, you're talking about these people from the half missing. And I'd never heard that before, uh -huh. except for I just yeah. saw this picture. So I could really visualize what you were saying. Yeah. So interesting. There, there's just I think, uh, what do you what are your on this? Um, and I'm probably not pronouncing this right, or I'm not going to put out. It's uh, the is it transformational where people able to change shapes and figures and represent themselves either much older or much younger. Um, Sorry, I don't know. I mean, I hear all the time that somebody that was old they look younger in heaven, you know, but. Yeah. Yeah, my parents definitely look younger. Um, my sister looked at the age. She died very young. She was 39, I think she was, when she died. Um, so she looked about 
exactly the same as I remembered her, but Donna's mother was definitely, and her brother was definitely younger. Yeah, and see, I'm not sure how babies do. You know, like um, I lost the twins. I was only two months pregnant with my dual pregnancy. And people say, oh, you'll see them in heaven. I'm like, well, do is that real? Because I really hope it is, of course. But at two months pregnant, I mean, they're not going to walk around looking like an embryo. Do they, do they, will they finish getting developed when I'm there? Is somebody carrying them or does God just make them a certain, you know, I don't know how this stuff works. We don't yeah, know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just like the little boy I saw. That little boy that I saw was probably who came up to me. If I had to put an age on him, probably my granddaughter is nine, getting ready to turn 10. And he had to be in that same area, seven, eight, nine, you know, years old, because he had that little giddiness to him, you know. And I remember saying to myself, what are, what are they sending a boy at? What, what, what are they sending a child out here to greet us? You know, that doesn't make sense to me, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I got to work through that one. That's one of them that I've got to work through. You know, I have, I think it's a work in progress, constantly processing. Like for a long time, I asked myself, well, I'm the only one I know of that basically hell no, I won't go when I lost the twins. I'm not going, I got, I had three little boys to raise. And I, I'm not going to let go. And um, I was, I was, since I had abusive childhood, I was afraid since my um, husband at the time drank a lot that my mom would get custody. And you know, she was very abusive. My stepdad was what well, he had been done to pass by then. But, and so I was like, no, I'm not leaving him down there on earth. You know, earth is horrible, the, you know, they, without their mother to protect them. And, and so, but everybody else was like, oh, I didn't want to come back, even though I have children and wonderful life. And some people were, you know, were doctors and they, they didn't want to come back. I'm like, well, why was I so mean and bad? And then uh, someone said, somebody asked an interviewer, uh, was at a conference and uh, people and the questions afterwards, I was watching the video and they asked him, said, uh, how come it is everybody wants to stay, but yet they're sent back and stuff. And he said, well, the exception is young mothers. They dig their heels in the clouds and nope, I got kids raised, you know, like there it is, you know. Yeah. And I have found when I really pray for an answer, it comes in the strangest of ways. So that's just been a little um, thing for me. But yeah. Um, yeah. So that that's kind of my stories. You know, I, uh, you know, after what, eight weeks of additional physical therapy and get me back up and going, you know, COVID is a disease that I tell my kids, it's a disease that keeps giving because you never kind of know what you're going to wake up or how you're going to feel the next day. Um, I've got some hearing loss. Um, I'm working with a neurologist now to see if, you know, because of the stuttering and, um, uh, and some in this, at all. Yeah, and some days I don't stutter at all. And yeah. uh, kind of, I get short of breath when I talk, especially, but um, I've had, x-rays and lung tests and everything and this is something else that's just a complete miracle is that um i have no scarring in my lungs from all of that i've got 98 percent capacity use of my lungs uh my kidneys are perfect they have no nothing wrong with them anymore liver's fully functioning fine i've had treadmills i've had harnesses i've had nuclear this that and the other thing with my heart and there's absolutely no damage to my heart i was the first person 
to survive COVID out of our local hospital. Everybody else was dying. I was the first person to receive, uh, and that's, that's this, this is part of my story, is that um, the hospital was very reluctant at the time to give me convalescent plasma. And my daughter, uh, Lisa, the nurse, um, my family rallied together and she said, I really think this will work for dad. And um, the hospital told him, well, if you can figure out how, how, how it works, we'll consider it. So they all, they all divided up jobs, you know. My daughter, the nurse, held the medical side. My middle daughter is really technologically good and on the computer, so she helped with Facebook and, and all congressmen, congressmen and, and all kinds of things. And then my wife and my oldest daughter were in, in charge of prayers. And they, they formed the prayer chains and got the word out for priest. I pray everybody. for that. And my wife fed everybody. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but the, when, and so my family had to do all the legwork, all the legwork. Um, they put an email together on Facebook and sent it out. It was viewed by over 70,000 people looking for volunteers, you know, because it had to come from a man and the plasma had to come from a male who had COVID and survived, obviously, because they wow. had the antibodies and uh, it had to be an A plus blood type because that's what I am. So it had to be very specific, but they had almost two pages of volunteers, people willing to travel from all over the United States to donate their plasma. And um, fortunately, there was a, a young uh, pastor in a town over to us because we're very close to Pensacola that um, said that he, you know, who matched perfectly. I think he was the third or fourth one down on their list. And um, so they went to the hospital and they said, well, if you can figure out how to do all of it, we'll consider it. So my, my kids called one blood here in our local area. It's like the Red Cross who handles the blood donations. And they said, they've heard about it. They've never had a request for it and they have nobody trained to take the plasma. But she said, we'll help you. So they got a hold of their, their main center in Orlando and sent two people down to get trained for, to, to take the plasma. So they came up and they took the plasma from this young man. They put it on an airplane, flew it down to Orlando to get it tested further for me. They brought it back. My daughter had to go to the FDA to get emergency approval to give me wow. the plasma. I was, my number is number 34. So I was the 34th in the nation approved to get convalescent plasma. First one in Northwest Florida. And um, so they finally went to the hospital and they said, okay, we found the donor. It's been tested. It's a perfect match. We want to give it to him. And the hospital said, no, we won't do it. Hmm. And they said, why? And they said, well, for many reasons, we're not a teaching hospital, you know, we're not, and they're still maybe two or three months from now when they run more experiments, we'll consider giving it to him. And she said, my dad will be dead by then. And um, we can't wait that long. We want him to get this convalescent plasma. Immediately. So they held, I don't know how many Zoom meetings with hospital administrators, and they had chiefs of this and chiefs of that, you know, and they had big long meetings of giving me this convalescent plasma and the hospital was very reluctant. 
and um, they kept persisting. My one daughter and my wife, my nurse, Lisa, I say my nurse, but she's my daughter. Um, she says, come on, mom, we're going. And they both had COVID, by the way. Lisa got it, my wife got it. My, my, my wife was asymptomatic and um, daughter Lisa had very mild symptoms. Kate was, was a little bit, my middle daughter, she had a little bit worse than the rest of them. She had trouble breathing and stuff, but never went to the hospital. My oldest daughter, Erin, never got it at all. But her husband did. But her husband did. Um, so Lisa grabbed my mom or my mom, my wife one day, and she goes, come on, mom, we're going to the hospital. We, you know, we're not leaving until we get an answer on dad's plasma. So they went out, they kicked him out of the hospital, told him they weren't allowed to be there. So they camped out outside the hospital on a park bench. And um, they said, we're not leaving until people come out here and talk to us about this. So they sent hospital administrators and everything came out and talked to them about it. One of them came out and said, if you don't leave now, we're calling the police for trespassing. And she said, well then call, because she says my next phone call is gonna to be to the news bureau, you know, about you kicking us off and you will, you're withholding treatment from my father on convalescent plasma. So um, they finally came home and on Thursday, I think it was before Good Friday, they had one final teleconference. No, Friday morning. Oh, Friday morning. Friday morning. Friday morning or Good Friday. They had another big teleconference. And I think there was eight people, they said, on this meeting. It was all the big hospital ones. presidents and, and chief of staff and CSOs and everybody. And um, my respiratory doctor is a godsend. He's an angel, angel sent from heaven. And they, um, he told the hospital, these people are gonna sue you if this man dies because you're withholding treatment and you refuse to give it to them. And they said- What was their reason for refusing? They didn't have one. They, they, they told them, they told them um, it's unethical. And um, that we had an ethics board and it's unethical. I'll get back to that they one. Already okay. um, they, um, my daughter has a friend who's host, who she went to nursing school with, whose father is the chief of infectious diseases at the University of Kentucky. Huge and she called him to get advice on all of this. And he offered to call the hospital to talk with the administrators that this stuff is safe, it works, use it. They refused to accept his phone call from him. And um, so my doctor, respiratory doctor, told him that these, these people are going to sue you. They took him off my case. They made him go out on vacation. They took him off my case. <laughs> so Good Friday, they had this big meeting. And, um, and um, they got off the meeting. And at the, at the end of the meeting, I think it was, we're not going to give it to them, uh, if I remember right. And um, Lisa gave him an hour to get back. Oh, that's right. Call me in an hour with the decision because you, you know, um, they kept telling my wife and my other daughter, oh, he's getting better. It's getting better. And Lisa, my nurse said, well, show us his x-rays. If he's getting better, I want to see his chest x-rays. If he's getting better, he wouldn't show them to her. And um, he goes, so you're not showing him to me. He's not getting better. And we're telling you, we want him this to get this plasma. They said, well, we don't know how he's going to react from receiving a blood product. And she says, you already gave him two units of plasma from somebody else. 
and you already given him two units of whole blood because I was bleeding out. They didn't know where I was bleeding from another gift from COVID. And um, she said, so you know how he's going to react from a blood product. You know what he, you know, this plasma is a blood product. You're not it's giving it to him, you know? That's so uh, my daughter said, you've got one hour and then I'm calling our, our lawyer. And um, they called her back and said, um, okay, we decided to give it, give the plasma to your dad. After and they the gave me, um, they, they, then she got a call about nine o'clock in the evening on Good Friday and um, they, by the uh, technicians, but she had developed a good relationship with them and they called and said, we just gave your dad the convalescent plasma. And from Good Friday on, it just changed my life. And you were taken yeah. off the ECMO machine. It yeah, was turned well, off on yeah, Saturday. Thought, yeah, Saturday you turned wow. off the ECMO and you, you, you heard your end of that. Yeah. So that's, you know, so I've got, we talked about that book. We got both aspects. Yes. Come from on the book. My I want your book to be a movie. Ah. I can see the, I can see the movie as <laughs> you're telling me this stuff. Well, my, my, my struggle, my family struggle with getting the hospital to cooperate and to get me this, them resisting, and then me laying there flat on my back, you know, and uh, not knowing anything that this is going on, and I'm off traveling, you know, up in heaven, <laughs> you know. So, and that's what we're trying to, and, and that's where we could use some help and guidance of, is how do you combine those two, you know, into- Well, that's- Right. See, that's what I thought. You know, I had this child abuse. Who wants child abuse inside an NDE book? People yeah. want to read an NDE book and see how wonderful heaven is. They want a beautiful story. But for I felt in order for them to um, under, to appreciate the good, they had to understand the bad, like where you're coming from. And that's the same with you. It you're you have you I uh, have you watched. I'll hold this up. Can you see that? Yeah. That was me. You send it to her so she can see you. Yeah. yeah. That was me. In the bed. Um, bed. They had paralyzed me. I was on paralyzing drugs um, because I was fought and everything so much. Have you watched 90 Minutes in Heaven, the movie? No. 